Welcome to the JIMD podcast. I'm James Nurse, the social media editor at The Journal. Every fortnight we release a new IMD-centric podcast, but you know that by now. So just sit back and listen as we embark on part two of our deep dive into the fascinating world of Barth syndrome. Well, hello there. Now, the journal occasionally does a special issue to focus on a specific disorder or group of conditions, and even more occasionally, we'll put out a special podcast to go along with it. The Bath Syndrome special issue from 2022 was so massive that we really couldn't do it justice with just a single podcast. And after the wonderful Dr. Hilary Vernon gave us a brilliant overview in part one, this podcast features a collection of authors discussing all things Bath. Now, a special episode requires some special guests, and I'm delighted to be joined by Eric Lontock of the Bath Syndrome Foundation to help put all of this research in context. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Eric, we're talking Bath Syndrome, and you're from the Bath Syndrome Foundation. I wonder if you could explain what the foundation does and who it's for. Sure. Um, so, the Bath Syndrome Foundation has been around for about 22 years. We support grants, we advance research, we conduct conferences on behalf of our community, and Really, overall, we serve as a scientific ambassador for our community, scientists, researchers, families, and affected individuals. When we first spoke about this podcast, you were explaining you know, just how much of this content is supported by your foundation. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's always that great tagline. Of, we raised $6.1 million for research, and it has resulted in $32 million of follow-on funding. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a nice little soundbite. But really, I think what your issue has done so wonderfully is that it's helped catalog and demonstrate the breadth and the quality of all of this research that the Bar Syndrome Foundation has funded over the last 22 years. So we'll, we'll begin with our first author interview, Dr. Frederick Vads, who's obviously uh, you know, no stranger to your foundation. Hey, Fred, Fred's wonderful. Fred has been a longtime friend of the foundation. Um, I think, oh, goodness. In the early 2000s, I think he was one of the early grants in like 2003, 2004. Um, he explains such a complicated assay so well in such a way that my community absolutely gets it. And not only is he able to communicate such a, the, you know, a complex and valuable assay, the assay is amazing. I mean, how many rare diseases are you aware of have a 100% specific and sensitive diagnostic test? That's bananas. Um, and it's just one of those things that, you know, it's, it's amazing scientific work that has clear, tangible impact for our community. Well, well, let's hear more about that assay from his paper, An Improved Functional Assay in Blood Spot to Diagnose Bath Syndrome Using the Monolyso-Cardiolipin-Cardiolipin Ratio. Um, and I began by asking Fred if he could explain a little around the action of tefazin. Uh, tefazin is um, a remodeling enzyme. So it takes uh, its substrate, which is monolysocardiolipin. So this is cardiolipin where one uh, fatty acid side chain has been cleaved off. And then uh, using a donor lipid uh, or fatty acid on a donor lipid reacylates uh, modal lysocardiolipin to form cardiolipin with a new fatty acid composition. And by repeating this process uh, a couple of times, uh, cardiolipin can achieve a very high linoleic acid content, which is generally the function of the remodeling enzyme to get cardiolipin to be uh, as it is in heart where it contains a lot of linoleic acid. And obviously within your paper, you're talking about a mass spectrometric assay for use with blood spots that looks at the kind of the ratio of cardiolipins. Is that correct to, to allow the diagnosis to be made? Is that the best way of describing it? 
The assay measures two metabolites, monolysocardiolipin and cardiolipin. So in Barr syndrome, you have a problem in converting monolysocardiolipin into cardiolipin. And by measuring the accumulating monolysocardiolipin and the deficient cardiolipin, and then calculating the ratio, dividing the one that is accumulating by the one that is not made, you get a very high ratio in case of Barr syndrome. And that's the diagnostic power of this assay. While it can measure two substances, do a ratio, and in controls, it will be completely reversed, very low. And in Barr syndrome patients, it will be highly elevated. The assay you developed has been around for the last two decades. The paper is obviously talking about a revised method of, of measuring these. What's changed? Yeah, we changed. We moved to a high-resolution system. We changed some parameters with respect to uh, which ion we use. Previously, we used a double-charged ion. Now we use a single-charged ion, which altogether makes it a lot more specific. So the ratio or the measurement is more clean, making the ratio more precise and have less noise. Another difference is the fact that we added a spectrum. So in the previous instrument, we only measured these two compounds and then calculated the ratio. But now we can also actually visualize different species of cardiolipin. So make an overview of how cardiolipin fatty acid composition uh, is. Uh, and that helps us a lot with respect to saying whether the, the ratio only was okay. But then we would have to re-ask a new blood sample to repeat the analysis in lymphocytes. And because now we can look at the spectrum, we only need this blood spot. So one shot blood spot is sufficient. And you don't need to go back to the, the physician, to the patient, to do a re draw off the blood and then send it back. So it makes the turnaround of the assay a lot better. Uh, so it's better for both the patient, the, the physician, and also in effect the laboratory because you can deliver a result much faster. And that's what I wanted to ask is, is how do you know this new method is better? I think within the paper, you've done some validation work. Yeah, yeah. you need to do the nitty gritty to really show that it's working as, as it should. So it's really specific and sensitive and that has been always been the case. But when you're moving to a, a new machine and you're doing new new setup, you really have to validate it. So that, that's yeah, not very interesting scientifically, but for the, for the diagnostic part, it's important to do this and to show that it's a solid assay. But yeah, we also used the paper to re-evaluate what has been done in the last two decades, how many patients we have found, how the repeatability of the assay is in same patients. So all kinds of things that you can only do when you have measured a lot of these blood spots and then look back. So, so that's what we did. And yeah, our conclusion was that the ratio works great. And especially with the new assay, we will be able to deliver a potential diagnosis much faster. Uh, and that uh, despite that uh, you are using a ratio, which is quite variable, it's still so much different between Barr syndrome individuals and those who do not have Barr syndrome, that it's really a good biomarker, so to speak. I mean, the other big change that we've seen in the last two decades is this sort of the arrival of whole exome and whole genome sequencing. Hilary talked a little bit about diagnostics often coming now via a genetic means. What's the role of tests like these in, in a genomic era? Yeah, it's really important because functional confirmation of variants of unknown significance, yeah, or even just by to confirm the diagnosis using a, a biochemical assay to support a genetic finding, I think is crucial. 
and also gives you the opportunity. And maybe this monolithic cardiolivin ratio is not a very good example of that, but there are other biomarkers that also correlate with clinical severity or that can be followed after treatment. But for a diagnostic point of view, I would say that if you have a biomarker to confirm your genetic finding, especially in case of variants of unknown significance, that that's really, yeah, it's really important. I mean, we're going to hear in this podcast, and we heard in, in Hillary's podcast a little bit about sort of potential new treatment modalities. Is is this test going to be useful in tracking progress of treatment or will that always be a clinically led process? It's actually been tried or is, is being tried for the uh, elipromide testing. Um this ratio, I think it gives you an indication of what's happening, but I would say it's more a diagnostic ratio than, uh, than uh, something to follow the treatment. We have tried in the past to look at, at phenotypes, okay, mild patients, and compare the, the ratios we find there, and there appears to be some correlation, but to really use it to monitor how well a patient is going... I think this ratio is not very suitable for that. You're one of the guest editors on this specialist here, and your colleague Ron has volunteered you very kindly to talk briefly about two of the other papers that you selected. Um, the first is the work of Keller et al., which is looking at how the lipid environment modulates cardiolipin and phospholipid constitution. What was it that you found interesting about this paper? Well, it's a very nice paper, which shows a very basic principle is that you are what you eat. The fact that uh, when you give different fatty acids to a cell, that this modulates yeah, not only cardiolipin, but also other phospholipids, and that this really depends on which fatty acid you give, what the effect is on the phospholipidome. That is a tremendous uh, good example of the, of the saying, you are what you eat. And uh, this, I think, applies to a lot more disorders where the changes in the, in the fatty acid environment are incredibly important also to determine how well a patient or, or in this case, a cellular system does. So I think we will see that in the near future that using diet uh, as, a, as a therapy, which has been done a lot, of course, but aimed at, at the fatty part of the, of the diet will become more popular and, and the effects it has on, on health are already known, but will hopefully increase and will be also aimed at helping patients who have disorders of complex lipid metabolism. So I was going to ask, is there a clinical application to this? I know we're going to, well, I won't spoil it, but we're going to hear later on about the potential for triheptanoin use in um, Barth syndrome. So finally, I also wanted to ask you about the work of Bazelli and Epand uh, that looks at some of the other metabolic perturbations within Barth syndrome, uh, notably the interplay between cardiolipin and plasmologens. Is it naive of me to ask, I mean, what's that all about? That's absolutely not a naive question. Uh, the, the paper describes more or less of a, of a hypothesis that, that has been supported by observations that indeed cardiolipin levels and plasmalogen levels appear to be communicating in a, in a way. And I actually think that it's more an, uh, an observation that says something about the fact that mitochondria and, and the, the energy that, that they produce, which is needed to, to synthesize all these complex lipids, is really also intimately linked with other parts of the, the lipid machinery, especially the, the eta lipids. And eta lipids are a very important and, and very special class of, of, of lipids that are getting more and more attention, rightfully so, because they're very interesting and, and important, for, especially for the brain. 
But I think the, 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 the fact that the mitochondrion in bar syndrome is so much affected, it's probably in a way is signaling to the peroxisome where uh, ether lipids are made in some way that something needs to be done about this bad membrane composition of the mitochondrion. And this might be a way to change the, the lipid composition to, to at least keep some mitochondrial function or sustain it. So I think it's very clear that it's not clear how this is, is uh, happening. And that's also what Appant and colleagues are saying is that really uh, more, much more uh, fundamental uh, investigations need to be done to find how this relation exactly occurs. But the fact that you have lower plasmalogens in, uh, in bar syndrome, and that might be it, as he suggests, to do plasmalogen replacement therapy, uh, as, as he says, that, uh, that at least is something that surely must be tried, whether this would be able to restore also cardiolipin levels. Okay, so the, another potential avenue for treatment there. That all sounds very exciting. It is. And I'm really happy that now we're moving away from only looking at cardiolipin, but really also now are looking at the complete environment of cardiolipin as a mitochondrial lipid, but affecting also a lot of other cellular systems, organelles, and uh, yeah, complex lipid synthesis systems. And I think the, 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 yeah, the dietary therapy might be something that, that when you find the mechanism and you know how to steer that towards a better memory composition uh, might be supportive. But well, we should be really careful to, to not get hopes up when you yeah, take the, the T word, uh, the therapy word into account, because it, it's uh, still very far away, but at least we should investigate the mechanism that, that will hopefully help us get towards therapy that really works. Obviously, Fred has finished there by talking about the T word, and that's something that's going to come up time and again in this podcast, something that I really hope we're going to come back to later on. Um, but in the meantime, I think we should introduce our next guest. Oh, yeah. Bill Poo, Boston Children's Hospital. Um, he's a member of our Science and Medical Advisory Board. He is one of the most highly independently funded researchers in Bar Syndrome. He has efforts in gene therapy, in genome-wide association studies. And really, I think you guys got the right person to talk about all the potential research models that are available in Bar Syndrome. Well, thanks. And I began by asking Bill about why we need these disease models. Yeah, so we need disease models to understand how a gene mutation can actually cause the manifestations of the disease. So that helps us understand what's going wrong in a disease process and also how to develop treatment for the disease process. And within the paper, you discuss a number of different disease models, the first of which is yeast. And it's something that actually comes up with one of the other papers that's also been selected from Dr. Greenberg et al. Um, what is it that yeast can teach us about a human condition typically associated with cardiomyopathy? Well, yeast have the advantage they grow very fast, they're very simple, and yet they are uh, the same type of cell as a human cell. They're eukaryotic cells and they have mitochondria just like human cells. And so actually many of the basic processes that go wrong in Barth syndrome actually also go wrong in the yeast cells that have these corresponding gene mutated. And do you see a lot of the same um, chemistry within the, the yeast cell? Right. So many of the abnormalities in cardiolipin metabolism are shared with the yeast cells. 
And uh, actually, many of the, them were first studied in the yeast cells, and we later learned that the mammalian cells have similar abnormalities. And within um, figure one from your article, it really appeals to my visual abstract designing side. It's this wonderful summary of the different models. I wonder if you could sort of briefly summarize the pros and cons of the different systems we use for looking at Bath syndrome. Yeah, so you can start with the yeast cells, which are very simple and sort of high throughput. So you can do a lot of experiments fairly inexpensively in the yeast cells. They also have very powerful genetic tools so that you could do experiments that are difficult to do in the other model systems. On the other hand, obviously yeast cells are far from human cells. And so we expect that there will be some differences, uh, particularly, uh, you know, some of the manifestations of Barth syndrome are particularly notable in muscle cells. And those type of cell-specific differences, you won't be able to study in a yeast cell. So then if we go up the evolutionary tree, there have been models made of fruit flies that have a TAS mutation. And there you can study muscle weakness. They have weakness of the flight muscles as, as well as the muscles for uh, crawling up against gravity. And so again, uh, Drosophila are also fairly inexpensive to use and are amenable to many of the powerful genetic screens. And so some of the basic discoveries in Barth syndrome um, have been made in Drosophila, particularly by Michael Schlamme. There has been some work done in zebrafish, although I think in our uh, Noah's Ark of models, those are relatively underrepresented in terms of uh, what's been done with zebrafish models of Barth syndrome. So then we can go to the mouse models. There's uh, two flavors of mouse models. One is a knockdown mouse model where TAS is not totally gone, but about 90 to 95% gone. And then we have the knockout model that was developed by Doug Strathy, which is a total loss of tefazin. And uh, in terms of an organism, that's the closest we can come to human is these genetically engineered mice. And they're very useful for studying disease mechanisms. Uh, we've been using them to study why different people have different severity of our syndrome and also to test potential new therapies. We think that the mice are probably the most predictive model that we can get that's not human, that we can test potential therapy. And then the final model is back to a cell model, but these are human cells. So, you know, obviously mice are not exactly like humans. So it's also valuable to test things in human cells. And so there are human stem cells that have been developed that lack tefazin. And then those stem cells can be turned into stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes so we can study human heart muscle-like cells that, that lack tefazin. And are we better off studying cells that lack tefazin altogether or cells that are engineered to carry common mutations in the tefazin gene that might be more consistent with Barth syndrome? I think our current conception is that most Barth mutations are a loss of function mutation. And so they're modeled by a loss of the gene. Of course, different people have different uh, manifestations of Barth syndrome. And so there is a possibility that, you know, some of the differences may be due to the specific mutation, but so far we have not strongly established that principle. And it, it's more likely that at least most of the mutations are loss of function. And within that summary, you, you stack these models from the yeast to the, the pluripotent stem cells. Does that mean those are gonna be our, the ultimate model of Barth syndrome? I think in, you know, because they're human, that's their main advantage. Also, we can do a lot of things in cell culture that are hard to do in organisms. 
On the other hand, the current state of making special cell types like cardiomyocytes from stem cells doesn't give you like the real thing. So a stem cell derived heart muscle cell is sort of like a fetal heart muscle cell. It it's, doesn't have many of the properties of adult cells. So I think it also like all the other models is imperfect. And probably what we need to do is combine the strengths of each model system to get a consensus about causes of disease and treatments of disease. So does that mean when you say combine the strengths of the systems, does that mean we end up inevitably experimenting in different models or is there a way to further refine the disease models we have to, to better reflect the disease in humans? I think it reflects that there's no perfect model because first, not each, each model doesn't reproduce all aspects of heart syndrome. And second, each model is better at some things and not as good at other things. Uh, so for example, in a cell model, we have the problems of immaturity and also it's hard to model uh, potential toxicities of therapy because you only have one cell type, so you can't study all the other cell types that may be adversely affected by a therapy. Uh, whereas in an organism, you can see how a therapy affects an entire organism, just as you would give a therapy to a, to a human that is a complex combination of many different tissues. Yeah, no, I mean, he's absolutely right. It's a general belief in science that, you know, no, no, no model is perfect. But I really do want to flag the, the pivotal nature of his IPSC work that he then converted into cardiomyocytes. You know, his work demonstrated the failure of bar syndrome IPSCs to contract, right? And that it's, it's one of those things that seeing is believing. So I really want to flag that that's amazing pivotal work. And in fact, in 2015, the American Heart Association flagged it as one of the top 10 scientific achievements in cardiac research. Well, uh, we're, we're all lucky to have him then, I guess. Um, and it's, it's some of those same animal models that facilitate the work of our next authors, Dr. Jan Dudek and Dr. Christoph Mack, looking at the mechanoenergetic aspects of Barr syndrome. And Christoph and Jan work at the Comprehensive Heart Failure Center in Würzburg. And I asked Christoph initially about why we can't talk about Barr syndrome without talking about energy. Our lab works on the important role of mitochondria for cardiac physiology and how things change in pathology. And this is uh, important because the heart is one of the most energy consuming organs in the body. And it basically turns over its ATP pool in less than one minute so that the replenishment of energy of ATP requires a very tight coupling between the processes of contraction and relaxation and mitochondrial function. And that is basically our focus. And in, in, in past years, we have observed that in various forms of heart failure, a lot can go wrong with these adaptation processes. And this often relates to uh, cardiac myocyte iron handling, where the start of the failure often lies that then leads to maladaptation in mitochondria. Whereas in Barth syndrome, the problem starts in mitochondria. And this can be of similar importance and it has similar negative impacts on the cardiac function then. And that is what our general work is focusing on. And so within the paper, you're telling the story of, of tefazin in cardiolipin remodeling and how in turn cardiolipin shapes mitochondrial morphology and impacts the mitochondrial metabolism that you're talking about there that's so relevant. Jan, you've been working on this for 20 years, but I wonder if you could 
briefly explain this relationship? So uh, cardiolipin is a molecule of the inner mitochondrial membrane. And um, this membrane is particularly bended, forming this beautiful crystal structures. And cardiolipin is particularly suitable in this aspect because it's a cone-shaped molecule um, and therefore it supports the bending of the membrane. But there is more to it. So many, many metabolic enzymes um, are actually located at or integrated into the mitochondrial membranes. And here, the, the characteristic features, uh, chemical features and physical features of cardiolipin are very suitable to form an interface between the protein world on the one hand and the lipid phase on the others. And this is particularly important for the structural integrity as well as for the enzymatic activity of many, many metabolic enzymes. And therefore, um, in Barr syndrome, um, many of these metabolic aspects are actually affected. Okay. And you've talked about the cell membrane there. I know that calcium signaling particularly um, is within the cardiac muscle is, is of, of interest to you. How does cardiolipin modulate calcium signaling? Cardiolipin is known to regulate the electron transport chain a lot, but also the, the tethering of mitochondria and other organelles. So we investigated the mouse model of the Barth syndrome, and the, the primary finding we had was that the main calcium channel in the inner mitochondrial membrane, the so-called calcium uniporter, virtually vanished from the mitochondria. And this is of paramount importance because the calcium is there to adapt the Krebs cycle activity and thereby also the function of the respiratory chain to changes in workload. And this adaptation is lost by the loss of the calcium uniporter. And therefore, during exercise conditions, the heart is not able to adapt its output to the demands. And this can contribute to the clinical observation that these patients do not have an increase in their ejection fraction, the volume of the heart that is ejected on each heartbeat, uh, when they do exercise. And the second problem is that because of the calcium deficit, the redox state in the mitochondria oxidizes, and this can additionally contribute to arrhythmias. So we believe that with this defect in calcium handling, we uncovered a mechanism that can explain why patients with Barr syndrome cannot adapt their cardiac output sufficiently to workload and why they are endangered of sudden cardiac death because during exercise, we see strong oxidations in the mitochondria that can contribute to these arrhythmias. I know that um, Hilary, Ron and, and Fred, when they asked me to speak to you, they wouldn't forgive me if I didn't mention your recent work in circulation about that uniporter you just mentioned and its involvement with the arrhythmias in, in Barr syndrome. Um, what was all that about? Well, that was basically the story I just told you. <laughs> it's because there has not been much known on the role of cardiolipin on cytosolic calcium. There is, there is nothing in the literature. So making the connection between cardiolipin and calcium goes via this calcium uniporter. And that was the original uh, observation we had in this uh, circulation paper. But another important aspect of the circulation paper was that it is perceived mostly that mitochondrial dysfunction in Barth syndrome provokes oxidative stress and the emission of reactive oxygen species. 
But the, the changes we observed in arrhythmias were not paralleled by an increase in reactive oxygen species, which was unexpected based on previous uh, studies on this. And therefore, we believe that this sort of oxidative stress is not the major problem. And therefore, also drugs that would quench oxidative stress, in our view, are probably not uh, helping in Bath syndrome. So we would rather focus on drugs that can better correct the iron handling that is malfunctioning in mitochondria and secondarily also the cytosol. Are your insights around calcium, do they allow you to sort of make a different approach to, to treatment? You're saying it's a new revelation about the calcium uniporter and about the absence of calcium within the cell, within the mitochondria, where was it? It's not coming to the mitochondria. So one clinical problem that we see is that many patients with Barth syndrome are still treated with digitalis or cardiac glycosides. And this is a drug that alters the cytosolic sodium and calcium homeostasis. And from previous work on mitochondrial calcium handling, we know that digitalis disturbs the calcium adaptation by elevating sodium. And interestingly, there is an association of the arrhythmias in patients with Barr syndrome and the use of digitalis. So we suggest not to use digitalis in Barth syndrome, particularly also because the, the original idea of the drug is to increase the contractility of the heart. But in patients who are rather stable with Barth syndrome, the ejection fraction of the heart is not very much reduced. And therefore, we see that the, the use of this digitalis is not is not very high because of the adverse effect on mitochondrial calcium handling. And instead, we would suggest to try other drugs that have been suggested to have an impact on cardiac sodium and calcium handling. Potentially, SGLT2 inhibitors could be tried because it has been reported that they lower sodium, which would be of advantage. But we don't have any data whether this is really helpful in this condition. It all sounds very exciting. So what comes next? Yeah, so uh, we had been wondering how the general metabolism in the heart is actually affected in, in the situation of dysfunctional mitochondria. And as mentioned before, the heart covers almost 80% of its energy demand by fatty acid oxidation. So we were looking into fatty acid oxidation and found this to be strongly reduced in, in Barr syndrome. And at the same time, we actually found that a retrograde signaling pathway is actually activated in Barr syndrome. That is a, a pathway which communicates mitochondrial dysfunction back to the nucleus. And here changes the transcriptional profile quite strongly. And this seems to remodel metabolism and some of these metabolic changes involves amino acid metabolism and many others. And this serves to compensate for the energetic deficit as well as for the redox homeostasis deficit in Barr syndrome. I, okay, but but can I just interject for a second? Like, I, you know, Jan and Christoph's work, and I, I also want to flag Eduardo Bertero. He's a recent MD graduate in, in their program, started as a graduate student. He was the first author in their calcium paper, absolutely stellar scientist. Um, so really that entire team, they are a perfect example of how Barr syndrome biology fits into the greater cardiac physiology, right? And when you find those opportunities where advancing Barth science aligns with advancing general cardiac science, 
that's the ideal situation for every kind of rare disease because it motivates people to get into your field and remain in your field because they understand that not only are you helping this community of affected individuals, but that you're generally advancing like cutting edge cardiac research. So, you know, I'm really glad that they are part of your, your podcast, an excellent group. I'm sorry to interject. I know that they're a perfect setup for, for Adam following up, but uh, I'll stop here. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Adam's work. It almost seems like I plan these things because our final paper is the long chain fatty acid oxidation and respiratory complex one deficiencies distinguish Barth syndrome from idiopathic pediatric cardiomyopathy. And as you say, um, Dr. Adam Chico was talking about the role of fatty acid oxidation in, in Barth syndrome and, and that moves on to the potential for treatment. And I began by asking what he wanted. Uh, the aim of our paper was to dig into the metabolic mechanisms responsible for Barth syndrome cardiomyopathy. Of course, our aim was really to be the, one of the first to look at human heart tissue in this area. We had done a lot of work in the mouse um, where we can obviously get a lot more information both in vivo and ex vivo. And so with the human tissue, really, we only had biochemical analyses that we were able to do. But we wanted to align those analyses with what we and others had done previously in the mouse, as well as the clinical data on live patients that had been done by, by others, particularly Todd Cade, and hope to glean from that some kind of insight about what makes Barr syndrome metabolic dysfunction different from other cardiomyopathies. So, so one of the unique approaches we were able to take, uh, given the tissues available at the UC Denver uh, Cardiac Tissue Bank, is we could get age and sex matched samples from patients with pediatric cardiomyopathy resulting from other mechanisms. So not metabolic cardiomyopathies, not mitochondrial diseases, just what we call idiopathic. So clearly some kind of congenital defect leading to childhood cardiomyopathy, but not the Fosin mutation or any known mitochondrial gene mutations. And I should note, the reason we wanted to do this comparison is that heart failure itself is known to result in a lot of mitochondrial and metabolic abnormalities. So we thought if we could have a control group, not only non-failing hearts at that age, but also failing hearts without the Tafazin mutation or, or Barr syndrome, that perhaps we could glean some of those metabolic defects that make Barr syndrome unique. And in, in doing that, perhaps identify some unique approaches that we could use to, uh, to try to combat, or as, as I put it, fuel the starving Barth syndrome heart. And so, of course, coming from a, a lab that studies mainly metabolism and mitochondria, we, we targeted our analysis of those proteins in the proteome, a lipid analysis, both of lipid metabolites and, and of course, the cardiolipins and oxalipids that, that are known to be uh, altered in Barth syndrome. And then did those comparisons with, with the failing hearts. So you, you compared these um, explanted heart tissue and the and the idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy. So what you talked about there, the feeding of the of the heart, what was it you found? Right. So it's been known for a long time, many model systems, uh, human tissue analyses, human cell lines from Barth patients, various approaches that, that there are mitochondrial defects, um, respiratory chain defects in Barth syndrome. That's well established. Uh, of course, these are also well-established to occur in heart failure. So what we really wanted to do is to try to distinguish what abnormalities were unique to Barr syndrome. So what we found was while there were lower levels of these respiratory chain enzymes, complexes one, three, four, five, I believe, all were just at uh, a tissue level analysis decreased, both in Barr syndrome and to some extent in the idiopathic cardiomyopathy. When we normalize to the uh, to citrate synthase, which is a, what we call kind of an oxidative hub enzyme, it's 
often used as a marker of mitochondrial content or density. In doing that, a lot of the, the decreases in, in respiratory chain enzymes in both the BARTH and the idiopathic uh, cardiomyopathy hearts, uh, that went away, suggesting that uh, some of the lower respiratory chain enzymes that we see in heart failure is probably just a result of lower levels relative to the total protein, which is what most people normalize to. So a, a hypertrophied heart is going to have a lot of muscle, excess um, sarcomeres, uh, fibrosis, things that will contribute to the total protein besides mitochondria. And then that's kind of a well-established thing. And, and so when we did that analysis and looked a little closer, complex one deficiency really stood out. And this has been shown before in the mouse model. And I think others as well, that that is the most profound decrease of the chain complexes in Bar syndrome. The other thing that was even more striking was the um, very long chain fatty acyl CoA dehydrogenase, VLCAD, or ACAD-VL, was lower, only in the Barth hearts. And there wasn't even a trend for this in the idiopathic cardiomyopathy. And we had seen that in the mouse model. Now, how that's downregulated isn't really clear. We talk about this a little in the paper. What was kind of curious and, and, and also seen in the mouse was the next set of enzymes kind of downstream in this long chain fat oxidation pathway that is often overlooked. Um, you know, when fatty acids come into mitochondria, there's a long chain system that's on the inner membrane for essentially beta oxidizing these into shorter chains that are eventually oxidized by a matrix system um, where most of this happens. Um, VLCAD is the one that we saw lower the first step. Um, after that, we see the trifunctional protein, which was actually elevated. And this was, again, something we saw in the mouse, uh, not seen in the cardiomyopathic hearts, definitely what I called a signature of Barth syndrome compared to heart failure. And when we looked at the fatty acetyl-CoA analysis, which we kind of overlaid, and I tried to put this together in a figure kind of to summarize our thinking on this, and it corresponded to some of the flux analysis we did in the mitochondria from mice, that there seemed to be a selective block up in the long-chain fat oxidation pathway and perhaps a complex one. And of course, they work together. So in that way, we thought that perhaps downstream of this in the respiratory chain, things might be working fairly well. Evidence from our mouse model suggests that if we provide glutamate, for example, that the oxidation rates are comparable to controls. So while there may be some defects in the respiratory chain that may limit some functions, the rate of electron flow seemed to be fine if you gave the right substrate in the mouse. Of course, we don't have that kind of flux analysis in the human tissue, but the molecular fingerprint correlated pretty well with what we saw in the mouse. And it suggested that there's a block upstream at the long chain fat oxidation step. We don't know if it's due to the VLCAD being lower, obviously the trifunctional protein that was elevated. What we found that, that excited us was that monolysocardiolipin, which is this uh, cardiolipin lacking one chain that we know accumulates very, very high levels in, in Barr syndrome. We actually did, a, I think it was one of the first analyses of this in human heart tissue and showed an enormous increase, you know, a 60 fold increase in the levels of this, which wasn't a surprise, but, but it, it was pretty remarkable how much of this was around. This substrate that we would like to have isolated with, with the tifosin, but of course, tifosin is what's mutated in Barr syndrome, can also be isolated by the trifunctional protein. There's a monolysocardiolipin seal transferase activity in that complex. And so we have this hypothesis that perhaps it's upregulated to handle this enormous increase in substrate load. So if that's the case, maybe the enzyme, which we saw some interesting you know, splice variants or, or different molecular weight banding of the enzyme when we did a Western blot, which we can only speculate might mean different sort of isoforms, we're not sure. But there were some that were up, some that were not. 
And we thought that perhaps there's some kind of change in that trifunctional protein that is not making it possible for the, the usual long chain fat oxidation steps to proceed as we need them to. And instead kind of getting gummed up by all this excess monolysocardiolipin. So those three findings together, generally in the absence of other changes, um, there are some blocks that may be adaptive. Certainly they don't seem directly linked to tafazin deficiency, but whatever the mechanism, we were pretty convinced by the profiling of the lipids that there's a block in the, in the long chain fat oxidation. And that complex one could also be a problem since you need complex one to oxidize NADH in beta oxidation. So those are the two, hence the title, molecular fingerprints that we saw that distinguish Bar syndrome from uh, idiopathic cardiomyopathy. Thank you for explaining that so thoroughly. I think I even followed it, which is excellent because this is not my thing. Um, appreciate that you're still building up our understanding of the cardiac phenotype within Barth syndrome, especially within the, the human model. But I mean, do these insights around dysfunctional long chain fatty acid metabolism and glucose utilization provide a target for sort of dietetic or anaplerotic therapies? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and this occurred to me when we were when we were writing it up. And interestingly, um, there's a, a new therapy that's been approved in the last couple of years for specific long chain fat oxidation deficiencies. It's a triglyceride with three C7 fatty acids or triheptanoate that is developed specifically to come in downstream of long chain fat oxidation defects. And so I, I, as far as I know, this hasn't been tried or thought of for Barr syndrome, but if this is indeed where we have a block, um, which is interesting. Uh, a C7 fat is cleaved from this uh, triheptanoate and probably in the liver, uh, perhaps in the heart, it's not clear. But these, of course, are short chain, uh, you know, ketone type bodies that, that we think, based on our analysis, should be able to get into the TCA cycle as alternative anaplerotic sources of, of electrons and ultimately fuel, perhaps, that the heart could use. It's known that failing heart actually can, can rely on these, uh, even independent of any kind of mutations. Um, ketone oxidation is thought to be increased in heart failure already. Whether or not we could supply enough of this to improve things like cardiac function or, um, or phenotype you know, in patients isn't clear. But it was exciting to see that that was an approved therapy. And based on our analysis, both in the human tissue and in the mouse, uh, suggests that uh, if we can come in downstream of, of long chain fat oxidation, this might be a way to fuel feel this, this starving heart, um, even despite the, the complex one deficiency. The other idea that's possible, and this is kind of a newer thought and uh, maybe not as clinically feasible, but uh, succinate has been used in mice, you know, to directly fuel the, the chain downstream of complex one. I, I'm not convinced that the decrease in complex one protein is terribly limiting in terms of oxos rates, just because we saw the same defect in complex one in the mice. And then they were able to oxidize glutamate at, at a pretty normal rate, at least the mitochondria, you know, in isolation. So if we're going to hedge our bets and, and complex one is, is perhaps a problem, then uh, succinate would be another way to come in downstream of that complex, fuel the uh, respiratory chain, you know, directly to complex three through succinate dehydrogenase. And uh, that actually comes downstream of the succinyl-CoA ligase that was also lower in, in the Barth syndrome heart. So um, those are two potential critical applications of, of the conclusions we've drawn, at least from the um, from these analyses. Eric, we started off by hearing about Fred, and he was starting to talk about the T word and, and, you know, really being very cautious about therapies, but was talking about dietetic and anaplerotic therapies and their role possibly in Barth syndrome. Triheptanoin is a licensed therapy that is already out there for, for other conditions. Is this something that's showing promise? You know, the research has to be done. I think that 
Adam's work alongside Jen Sparagno, who's, who's been his long-term research partner for many, many years now. I think that they've made a compelling case for why delivery of medium-chain fatty acids that circumvents the required entry of long-chain fatty acids might play a role in BAR, especially in the context of the possibility that complex two it remains functional in BAR syndrome heart cells. I think that there's a compelling case to be made there, and it's so compelling that the Bar Syndrome Foundation chose to fund Adam's award entitled Feeding the Starving Heart in Bar Syndrome in 2022. So we look forward to the outcomes of that research. And first of all, thank you very much for, for having me on here. I really appreciate this opportunity. I, I really want to tout the incredible value of what you and JIMD have done on behalf of the Bar Syndrome Foundation and our entire field. It, it's, it's really meaningful. And we very much appreciate it. And on this final topic of therapies, I think it's, I really want to stress that, you know, the outlook of scientists and research is very far, right? We, we tend to think in years and publications and five-year research grants, so our outlook is very far. But what makes rare disease research so special is that the needs and the struggles and the demands of our community are, are, are very immediate. Um, sorry. It's, it's a devastating and it's an absolutely debilitating disease. Just imagine being tired all the time, being too tired to get up, being too tired to walk a block. Can you imagine trying to live your life, all the things that you do? You can't walk a block. That's a challenge. Or if you're a 13-year-old boy and you see all these other, your, your, your peers, they're active. I mean, I have a seven-year-old kid. I couldn't tie him down if I tried. And, and that's not the case for, for our community. And outwardly, they look normal. Outwardly, they have no external manifestation of this incredibly devastating and debilitating disease. So we look forward to the outcomes of um, Dr. Chico's research. We're excited about the prospect of enzyme replacement therapy and gene replacement therapy for BART because this, this community, we face a field where we have no therapies. They're treated for their cardiomyopathy because, hey, somebody's in heart failure. This is what you give them, right? They suffer from skeletal myopathy. Well, okay, so we give them physical therapy, occupational therapy. You can't hang out with your friends. Your, your mental health is impacted. So I, I really appreciate the, the, the incredibly far-reaching and broad scientific outlook of this effort. And I, I think what, what we bring to the table as, as the Bar Syndrome Foundation is we offer the capacity to help facilitate this research. And at the same time, you know, we serve to amplify and voice the unmet needs of our community. Eric, that is, that's so powerful and that's so emotive. And I, um, I mean, you've left me speechless, which is, which is quite an effort. I, I, I wanted to let you have the last word and I really, I can't add anything at the end of that. I think um, all that remains is for me to, well, to thank our guests, Fred, Bill, Jan, Christoph, and Adam, and to thank you, Eric, you have been, you know, an incredible co-host. You're a passionate speaker. You're a wonderful advocate for Bart syndrome. And I wish I could have you on every podcast. Hey, you let me know if I can help, <laughs> <laughs> but I will tie it into Barth every chance I get. <laughs> and, and why not? <laughs> thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time. Goodbye.